Hello, wonderful people. It is so nice to be back. I am so sorry I wasn't here last week. I was away. How was the heat? Did you melt? Did you actually melt? Because for a brief, brief moment in time, I was more puddle than person. But we got through it. We are here. The grass is still green-ish. And it's currently, as I record this, 18 degrees and raining. So welcome back to the traditional British summer. And welcome to the 60th edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. It's not the 60th week of broadcast. We have had the odd filler episode, but this is the 60th brand new edition of the show. Welcome to it. We've got sort of a special one for you this week, because I'm going to be focusing mostly, mostly, on the San Diego Comics Convention, otherwise known as Comic-Con, which happened last week in San Diego, California as it has happened every year, apart from the last couple of years, when it couldn't because of, well, you know. But first, it is with huge sadness that I have to do yet another obituary for a comics great. We've lost a lot of giants of the industry this year. Neil Adams, George Perez, and now Alan Grant. Alan Grant was a... Prolific and talented writer of comics uh, with a career that spanned decades. Uh, I think his his first work for DC Thompson in Dundee um, in 1967. He then moved down to London, which back in those days was definitely where the action was, and worked for IPC magazines on various romance comics, because that used to be a thing. And then eventually he met a guy called John Wagner back in Dundee, and Wagner had um, scored the job of helping to co-create the comic 2000 AD. You may have heard of it. And Wagner asked Grant if Grant would help him finish the Tarzan comic he was working on, because with all the work he was doing for 2000 AD, he didn't have time to do it all himself. And that was the start of a writing partnership that, again, has spanned decades. Grant eventually moved on to working on a strip in Star-Lord, which was a sort of 2000 AD companion comic. Uh, the two eventually merged in the way that comics did in the 70s and 80s. And Grant then was offered an editorial position on 2000 AD. And his first job was another merger, the merger of 2000 AD and Tornado. But he also worked as a writer for 2000 AD, and alongside John Wagner, did an awful lot, and I really do mean an awful lot, of Judge Dredd in the 80s. And that was where I discovered Alan Grant. I first picked up a copy of 2000 AD in the mid-80s, and instantly was captivated by the character of Judge Dredd and the stories they were telling at the time, which were by John Wagner and Alan Grant. As my interest in comics expanded, I started looking at American comics and discovered that John Wagner and Alan Grant were also writing Batman. And that was where my love of the Batman character started. Uh, and if you could see the um, literally thousands of Batman comics in my attic right now, you would understand what a profound influence this guy had on me. And on Batman. If you are reading Batman at the moment, if you've been reading Batman over the last few years, you will recognise the names of the characters Anarchy and Mr. Zaz and the ventriloquist and Scarface, they are all 
Alan Grant co-creations and have become hugely important to the mythos of the character. Grant was a, a writer of conviction, but also of imagination. The character of Anarchy, for example, is recognisably influenced by Alan Moore's character of V from V for Vendetta. But with a twist, Lonnie Machin, as he was envisaged by Alan Grant, was a kid, just a kid, who'd got himself into some radical politics and was acting it out. And although Anarchy was an antagonist, he was never a villain. Certainly when my 16-year-old self was reading Batman and discovering Anarchy, I was sitting there reading it and thinking, well, he's got a point, you know. He's got a point. And that was the genius of Alan Grant. He could make any character empathetic, and he wrote characters that made you think. He was big on community. He was uh, active during COVID in producing a comic for his local community about the virus and its effects on the community and about the community's spirit in the face of adversity. He was big in the comics community as well. He always seemed to me on the couple of occasions when I'm not going to say I met him. I didn't have the nerve. Uh, I've been at conventions that he's been at and I have seen him. And I did not have the confidence to go and talk to him because he was such a giant to me. I wish I had now because I'm not going to get the chance. But he was always surrounded by people and he was always helping. He was always giving advice, not criticism, not ever criticism. If people showed him their work, he would tell them how to make it better without kind of telling them how terrible it was. He was a, just a good man who was very talented at what he did. He was a stunning writer and he was happy to use his talent to help other people and make people's lives better. And I genuinely, I genuinely don't know how you could be a better person than that. So here's to you, Alan. You will be much missed. And I wish all the people that are saying nice things about you now had said them while he was still around to hear them. But I always, always think that. So maybe we should do something about it. Yeah, maybe we should. OK, OK, time to move on. As I said, it was the San Diego Comic Convention last weekend. And the SDCC isn't what it used to be. It started out as a just a little comic convention where people who liked comics got together and some of them got dressed up in costume and they talked about comics and then they bought comics from people who made comics. And that was it. That, that was everything. But that was a long time ago. And the SDCC now is, well, it's, it's a cultural phenomenon. There is an excellent, excellent podcast which talks through the history of the SDCC, which I heartily recommend. And I will put a link to that in the show notes because I can't remember what, even what it's called right now. And my phone is not in the studio, so I can't actually check as I'm recording. But links in the show notes to that podcast because it's fascinating history. It really is. What it's grown into is a media juggernaut that doesn't have that much to do with comics anymore. Although comics are still 
kind of... A, I was going to say at the heart of it. They're not. At the heart of, it, of, the, of the con would be the wrong thing to say, but they are still very much at the soul of the convention. All the focus now is on the movies and the TV shows, but they are the movies and the TV shows that are either based around comics, inspired by comics, or heavily influenced by comic culture. So, yeah, they're not at the heart of it. That's definitely TV. But they are still the soul of the con. And San Diego is where you get all the big announcements for you know the next phase of Marvel, the next DC movies, the next movie based on that superhero, the next geeky TV show to replace Game of Thrones or, you know, all of those big announcements come in San Diego. And we're going to have a look at some of those during the show. Um, it's also where they host the Eisners every year. Now, the Eisners, named for the great Will Eisner, probably the most influential person ever to work in comics, the Eisners are always described as the Oscars for comics. And they are a big deal in my world. And indeed, one of the advantages of being a comics professional, which is how the Eisners view me, because I run a comic store, I get to vote in the Eisners. I'm a small voice, but I did have some say, and some of the people I voted for actually won, so there you go. Now, I'm not going to do a full rundown of who won what, because it will involve me talking about a lot of comics you've never heard of, and a lot of people you've never heard of. And whilst you should have heard of both, it's going to take too long. I will probably be introducing you to several of the comics and creators that won Eisner's in future episodes. So stay tuned for that. But I do want to go over the highlights because it was a good year. It really was a good year. Uh, the publishers who got the most awards um, were DC Comics, Image Comics and Fantagraphics, although... Fantagraphics won mostly thanks to one particular book about which we will speak later. And it's no particular surprise that DC and Image got the most awards because they also got the most nominations. What I think was notable was how few Marvel comics scored because Marvel's had a good year and yet not really critically rewarded. And that's a shame, actually. I genuinely think that. Although. I don't think it that much, because I certainly don't argue with any of the nominations or any of the winners, even the ones I didn't vote for. So, who's won? Well, the Russ Manning Promising Newcomer Award, which is one that I like to keep a note of because it's telling you who's going to be big. Um, it was presented by a previous winner, Jeff Smith, who was the creator of Bone, and who is a rock star to me. Uh, the nominees were Matthew Clark for a book called Hard Ears. Uh, Emma Kubert for a wonderful comic called Ink Inkblot, which I heartily recommend. Uh, Meredith Laxton for MPLS Sound. Uh, Luciano Vecchio for a comic called Bolero. And Andrew and uh, Audra Winslow uh, with a comic called Joe and Russ. Now, the nominees for this award are chosen by the board and the committee members, and they're decided with a vote of previous winners of the award. So, you know, I, this isn't, isn't one I got to vote on. I do, however, agree with the result. Uh, they awarded uh, the, the award to Luciano Vecchio for Bolero, which is a stunning comic. 
The collected edition is in stores right now. Uh, you can go down to Destination Venus today. If you, well, not right now, because if you listen to this as it drops, it's, we're closed. But you can go down to Destination Venus or any other good comic shop and pick up a copy of the collected edition of Bolero. I heartily recommend you do. Uh, there was then the Spirit of Comics Retailer Award, which I have never been nominated for, and I'm not bitter about it at all. Uh, it's a great award. It recognises retailers who are trying to make a difference. Uh, and it went this year to Katie Pride of Books with Pictures, Comics for Everyone, which is located in Portland in Oregon. Um, it's a great little shop. I, I, I've had a, a, a look around their website. Clearly, I've never been. I've never been to Oregon. Uh, but it's a, a woman-friendly, trans-friendly comic shop uh, in Rose City. And it looks amazing. I aspire to be as welcoming as Comics for Everyone is. It's so good to see comics retailers who are actively trying to bust the stereotype of what a comic shop is. We are not that shop that you see in the Big Bang Theory. Don't get me started on the Big Bang Theory, but we're not. Comic shops are not that. And comic shops like Books with Pictures, Comics for Everyone, really underline that we're not like that. And that's the kind of shop I think we all should be aspiring to be if we're in that business. So a hearty, hearty congratulations uh, from all of us to all of them. Um, then there was the uh, the Eisner Hall of Fame. Um, these are not Eisner Awards as such. These are people who are being added into the Will Eisner Comic Awards Hall of Fame this year. Um, some of them are entering posthumously. Uh, one of those would be uh, Marie Duval, who was the co-creator of the British cartoon character Ali Slaper, which is considered the first recurring cartoon character and was created in 1867. So that one has been a long time coming, uh, as has the award for Rose O'Neill, who was the creator of the Cupies in 1912. Um, you've also then got Max Gaines and Mark Grunwald, um, both modern creators. Um, a guy called Alex Nino, who has worked for Marvel and DC. He's a Filipino-American artist. And the great P. Craig Russell. Uh, who has worked on Sandman, on Coraline, American Gods, Norse Mythology. He's worked a lot with Neil Gaiman. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful artist. And all of those are very, very well deserved. All of those people were inducted into the Hall of Fame on the say-so of the organisers. Uh, they were automatic inductees. In addition to those... Uh, there were 17 nominees who were shortlisted, um, out of whom five uh, could be voted on by the masses and um, go forward and be inducted into the Hall of Fame as well. Uh, they were the ultra-prolific Howard Chaikin, who I first came across in the 80s with uh, writing a comic called Black Kiss. I'm not actually a big fan of his work, but you can't argue against him because he has been so influential for so long. Uh, speaking of people who've been so inf influential for so long, Kevin Eastman, the co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, still working after all these years. Um, and who doesn't love the turtles? They were, they were very important to me as a kid. 
Uh, you've also got uh, Larry Hammer, who is uh, an Asian American civil rights activist and also writer of G.I. Joe comics. Uh, the pioneer of shoujo, uh, Moto Hagio, uh, who uh, a Japanese manga creator, and David Matsuchelli, uh, who worked with Frank Miller on Daredevil: Born Again and Batman Year One. He was the artist uh, on both of those, and also. Scotland's own Grant Morrison, uh, creator of Happy and so much other weirdness, the guy behind the Invisibles, which I really hope they make a TV show of. Now, I didn't think you could, but then I saw the boys. A great bunch of creators, all of whom I have huge respect for, whether I like their work or not. Uh, so, yeah, it's a good list this year uh, going into the Hall of Fame. My vote in that, incidentally, went to Grant Morrison, so I'm glad he got in. Okay, then we get to the awards themselves. So I'm not going to go over all of these. Uh, I am going to give a shout out to the winner of the best single issue one shot, uh, which was Wonder Woman Historia of the Amazons by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil Jimenez, uh, which is a great Wonder Woman story. Um, obviously, it's just issue one that got that award. Uh, it is a series, but each issue stands alone, so it qualifies. And it's a great piece of work. It's, it's a wonderful take on Wonder Woman. Uh, Best Continuing Series is an interesting one because it was a tie, and I don't think I've ever known there to be a tie before. Uh, it was jointly won by Bitterroot, uh, by David F. Walker, Chuck Brown and Sanford Green from Image Comics, and Something's Killing the Children by James Tinian IV and Werther Del Edera from Boom Studios. Both worthy winners. Uh, they were up against Nightwing by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo, which I voted for and which is astounding. A wonderful piece of work. I've talked about Nightwing before. Uh, the Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing and Joe Bennett and The Department of Truth. Also by James Tinian IV uh, and Martin Simmons. So James Tinian IV actually beat himself uh, to this. Uh, Bitterroot is a great book. It is uh, set in um, the African-American community in New York, uh, and it focuses on a family who are a group of monster hunters. And it, it's a it's, it's great. It's a really cool book. Uh, if you like people fighting monsters, you will like Bitterroot. It's great. Uh, Something is Killing the Children, also a monster fighting book. Um, does exactly what it says on the tin. It is the most literally titled comic. Something is killing the children. Erica Slaughter will do something about it. Um, both excellent, excellent books. Um, James Tinian IV also picked up the best writer, Eisner, uh, as well. Uh, he, he, he's very prolific. Um, he's done Batman. He's He's got a, a several creator-owned books out there, uh, such as The Department of Truth, uh, which was a runner-up. In this in this category, uh, the best limited series, uh, the difference between an ongoing and a limited ongoing series don't have a planned end date. Limited series do. Uh, the best limited series uh, was The Good Asian uh, by Pornsak Pichetshot uh, and uh, Alexandre Tefenki. And I've pronounced both last names incorrectly. Uh, and I apologize to both creators for that. Um, it isn't the one I voted for, but it is a great comic. Uh, it follows uh, an Asian American detective in San Francisco in the 1930s. 
Uh, it deals with the racism that such a person faced. Uh, it's actually not legal for him to be. He's actually a, a cop in Hawaii. Uh, it's not legal for him to be a, a cop in San Diego because California wouldn't let Japanese Americans be cops back then. Uh, and indeed, it would not allow Japanese people to emigrate to the United States at all during this period. Uh, and it deals with all of that. It's also just a cracking good detective story. And that's important. Telling a story all about racism is very, all very well, but it needs to be a good story too, or it's just preachy. And The Good Asian isn't preachy, but it does make some excellent points. Um, I actually voted for The Many Deaths of Layla Starr by Ramvi, um, Philippe A. Andrade, and I stand by it. I love The Good Asian, but I think The Many Deaths of Layla Starr is perhaps the best book I've read in comic form, certainly in the last decade. It tells the story of Layla Starr, who is possessed by the spirit of death, uh, the goddess of death, Kali, because the goddess of death has been kicked out of the Hindu pantheon because a guy is about to invent something which will make mankind immortal, and therefore there's no need for death. And spirit is kicked down to earth on the same day that this guy is born. And what happens is that at the end of every episode, something happens to Layla Starr, uh, and she dies. That's not a spoiler. It's called The Many Deaths of Layla Starr. We find out why she keeps coming back uh, a little bit later on in the series. And every time she comes back, it's a few years later, and she meets this guy at different stages in his life. And initially, she wants to kill him. Because if he's dead, he can't invent immortality and she will still have a job. But she begins to understand humans and humanity. And it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. The artwork is very striking. I might even go so far as to say Marmite. Not everybody likes it. Um, the people who don't are wrong, but what are you going to do? It's very vivid. Uh, the colour palette is very vibrant and very clashing. And it's, the storytelling is innovative. One entire issue is narrated by a cigarette. And honestly, it's sublime. It is sublime. So I'm sorry it didn't win, but I can't actually knock The Good Asian because that is also sublime. Um, the best new series went to um, The Nice House on the Lake uh, by a guy you might have heard of called James Tinian the Fourth, uh, along with Alvaro Martinez Bueno, uh, published by the DC Black Label. Uh, I did vote for this, and I think it's a hugely brilliant book. It's an apocalyptic story. The world is ending. A few people have been gathered together by somebody who is involved in the ending of the world to live out the rest of their days at his lake house. It is a nice house on the lake. But do they really want to spend eternity there with each other? It's the best kind of psychological horror. I absolutely loved it. Uh, the, the best reality-based work, the sort of best work of non-fiction in comics, because that stuff exists. Uh, it was a strong field uh, this year. Um, there was The Strange Death of Alex Raymond by Dave Sim and Carson uh, Gruber. 
there was Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness by uh, Christian Ratke. Uh, a biography of Orwell, called Orwell, uh, by Pierre Christian and Sebastian Verdier, translated by Edward uh, Garvin from uh, Self Made Hero. Uh, Lugosi, The Rise and Fall of Hollywood's Dracula by Goran Shadmi, uh, that's on Humanoids. Uh, and Hakim's Odyssey, Book One, From Syria to Turkey, by Fabian Tolmey, uh, translated by uh, Hannah Shute. The winner, though, was The Black Panther Party, A Graphic History, by David F. Walker and Marcus Kwame Anderson from Ten Speed Press. I did vote for that, and I think it's brilliant. The Black Panther Party is a hugely misunderstood organisation from history, and I was fascinated, fascinated to learn the truth about something I'd always been told was basically a terrorist organisation. Spoilers, it was not. And uh, it, it's a fascinating story. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, and proof, actually, that comics can do more than just action stories. Now, I, mean, I know that, and a lot of you know that too. But even more so, it's good to know that you know this, this stuff is out there. Um, and on that thing, the best, the best graphic memoir uh, was won by Run, book one, by John Lewis, uh, Andrew Aidlin, El Fury, and Nate Powell from Abrams Comic Arts. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful graphic novel. John Lewis, of course, is um, not the department store in this context, but the late, great John Lewis, civil rights activist, long-term United States senator, and all-round decent human. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating read. And again, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Then we come to the best new graphic album. Uh, and a, a graphic album is a difficult thing for me to define. Um, I am going to define it for now as a really posh graphic novel. Yeah, in that it, it's a self-contained thing. Uh, it, they're they're, they're hard-covered, they're you know, quality presented books. Um, now, this is one by Monsters, by the great Barry Windsor Smith uh, from Fantagraphics. It's difficult for me to explain exactly what this book is. Uh, I'm just going to recommend that you get a copy and read it. Uh, I know it's available in uh, the libraries in North Yorkshire, certainly, uh, and available from not just all comic shops, but all good bookshops. If you've got a bookshop or a comic shop that can't get hold of a copy of this, then um, then they're not a good bookshop. Sorry. Best writer, um, we've already said, went to uh, James Tinian IV for House of Slaughter, Something is Killing the Children, Wind, The Nice House on the Lake, The Joker, Batman, DC Pride 2021, uh, The Department of Truth, Blue Book, Razor Blades, and other stuff. Seriously, the guy gets around. He's written a lot. Uh, it was a tough field. Uh, he was up against Ed Brubaker, um, writer of Destroy All Monsters and Friend of the Devil last year, but also the creator of some of the best crime comics ever written. Uh, you got Kelly Sue comic for uh, Wonder Woman Historia, uh, also a wonderful, wonderful writer, Kelly Sue, uh, with a, a huge, huge um, back catalogue of wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, Felipe Melo uh, for The Ballad for Sophie from Top Shelf. Uh, and Ram V, who wrote The Many Deaths of Layla Starr. Uh, Swamp Thing, Carnage, uh, Venom. Uh, and again, a huge number of other stuff. 
last year. Um, Ram V has just taken over the reins on Detective Comics, the oldest comic, uh, the oldest American comic that isn't action comics, uh, and the oldest Batman book. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well done to him. It was well, well deserved. I actually voted for Ram V, but I cannot argue with James Tinian the Fourth. Fantastic writer. Uh, best writer artist, that is to say, somebody who writes and draws their stuff, uh, went to Barry Winter Smith for Monsters. Um, again, well deserved. Uh, the best penciler inker or penciler inker team. Uh, in comics, you have usually somebody who does the pencils and then somebody who inks over them. Um, this went to Phil Jimenez for Wonder Woman Historia, uh, who was not a team. He did both himself. Uh, he was up against Bruno Redondo uh, for Nightwing, which is who I voted for because I've said before on this show that currently uh, the, Bruno, uh, the, the Bruno Redondo um, Tom Taylor uh, Nightwing uh, is just sublime. I, I, I refuse to accept that there is a better comic out there at the moment. It, it's superhero comics done perfectly. Uh, but I can't argue with Phil Jimenez. Again, absolutely brilliant piece of work for Wonder Woman Historia. It's beautiful. Uh, the best painter or multimedia artist for interior art went to Sana Takeda for a comic called Monstrous from Image, which if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It is beautiful. And that's what I voted for. So yay me. And the best cover artist uh, went to Jen Bartel um, for Future State, Immortal Wonder Woman, um, Wonder Woman Black and Gold, Wonder Woman 80th Anniversary. She does a lot of Wonder Woman. Um, and various uh, women's history variant covers for Marvel last year. Who I voted for, well-deserved. Nobody draws a cover like Jen Bartel. Uh, she's currently drawing the covers for She-Hulk. Uh, I will try and put some examples of her work in the show notes. Uh, again, tough field. She was up against David Mack, um, who is a wonderful, uh, wonderful artist. Uh, Bruno Redondo, who does the Nightwing covers, and honestly, every Nightwing cover that he's done needs to be a poster and i need it on my wall um alex ross who is regarded by many as the best comics cover artist ever um so yeah it was it was a tough field and i honestly i think jen bartel deserved it uh the best coloring um because again in comics particularly american comics the person who draws the comic is not the person who does the coloring in usually um that went to Matt Watson for Undiscovered Country, Firepower, Eternals, Thor, Wolverine, and Joanna and the Unpossible Monsters. And not who I voted for, but again, Matt Wilson's colouring is utterly divine, and I can't argue with it. Uh, I actually voted for Felipe, Felipe Andrade um, for the Mendes of Later Star because um, I liked it. And then the award for the most overlooked person working on a comic ever, otherwise known as Best Lettering, went to Barry Windsor-Smith for Monsters. And again, can't argue with that. There were a number of other awards. Um, the only other one I'm going to mention is Best Webcomic, because that is one that you can actually go and have a look at yourself. It was actually won by... Um, Law Olympus by Rachel Smythe, which is available on Webtoon. Uh, links in the show notes to that. Uh, and that was the Eisners. 
for 2022. Something of a vintage year, I would argue. More info on all of that in the show notes. Uh, Just go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk, click on the blog thing on the homepage and look for Geeking with Destination Venus episode 60. But, important as the Eisners are, they're just one evening at the San Diego Comic-Con. So what else happened? Well, it's funny you should ask. And I guess the big thing that always happens at the SDCC is Marvel Comics taking over Hall H, which is the big hall that seats thousands, and announcing all kinds of new projects, dropping new trailers, and all of that kind of thing. So, first of all, two new Avengers movies are coming. Avengers, the Kang Dynasty, and Avengers Secret Wars, both of which will be out in 2025. Um, the first one, Kang Dynasty, in on May 2nd, 2025, and uh, Secret Wars following on November the 7th, 2025. I am impressed at that, given that they haven't actually started shooting, and I can't decide what I'm doing next week. That is some serious forward thinking. Uh, the Russo brothers have expressed interest in directing the Secret Wars movie. Uh, Kevin Feige has said that they are not currently connected to the project. Um, they also dropped uh, a teaser trailer for Wakanda Forever, uh, which I hope to have dropped into the show notes and which is stunning. Uh, I I was worried for the next Black Panther movie. Uh, since the, 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 the sad loss of Chadwick Boseman uh, a couple of years ago. But, uh, oh, I think they might have covered it, you know. I think they might have. Uh, then we have the Multiverse Saga coming up. Um, we've got um, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. That's February the 17th, 2023, next year, which will officially kick off Phase 5 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, phase four being wrapped up by um, Black Panther Wakanda Forever in November this year. Um, now, as part of the Multiverse Saga, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that I'm really, really looking forward to. Uh, Daredevil's return to Arrival in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been confirmed. Um, Charlie Cox will reprise the role of Matt Murdock. Um, which he played in the Netflix series of Daredevil and also uh, in Spider-Man No Way Home. He's getting a series, uh, Daredevil Born Again, uh, an 18-episode series on Disney+, Plus, which I presume will be drawing heavily from the Daredevil Born Again storyline from the comics in the 80s, uh, which will be great because that was some of the best comics ever written, I think. Uh, And we also got a a new trailer for She-Hulk Attorney at Law, uh, which Charlie Cox will be appearing in as Matt Murdock as a fellow lawyer. Because um, um, obviously She-Hulk is also a lawyer. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 uh, was announced, slated for to be in theatres May the 5th, 2023. Uh, the third and final Guardians movie, uh, directed by James Gunn. Um, it's going to feature Adam Warlock about flipping time, played by Will Poulter. Uh, obviously, Chris Platt, uh, Chris Platt, Chris Pratt 
is coming back. And it's going to also explore the the history of Rocket Raccoon, uh, who James Gunn refers to as one of the saddest creatures in the universe. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to that. Then we've got Secret Invasion, uh, a Disney Plus series starring Samuel L. Jackson airing spring next year. Sam, Sam Jackson obviously coming back as Nick Fury with um, Kobe Smulders as Agent Maria Hill. Um, also going to feature... Amelia Clark, Olivia Coleman, and Don Cheadle. And I, I really want to see that. I already mentioned Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. And I've got to say, that that looks like an interesting schedule. And that's on top of stuff we already knew about, like Loki Season 2. And I'm excited. I'm very excited uh, for a lot of what is coming. And honestly, that's just what Marvel announced. That's not even everything Marvel announced. Other announcements included and i honestly again i'm not going to go over every single one of them there were too many uh but some of the announcements from other companies that just caught my eye lego is launching three new sets based on james cameron's avatar no i don't know why either but hey it's lego and that's always cool uh, we also got our first look at the dungeons and dragons honor amongst thieves movie and that looks pretty amazing uh then there was uh, new Transformers figures that are going to delve into Optimus Prime's origins. Uh, we got a look at Disney's National Treasure TV show with a teaser trailer for that. Uh, there was new gameplay footage of uh, the Gotham Knights video game uh, focusing on Batgirl, which clearly I'm always going to be interested in. Also the announcement that the Joker won't be in Gotham Knights, which, okay, fair enough. Um... Amazon's Wheel of Time has been announced, uh, renewed for a third season. I really must get around to watching that at some point. Uh, what else was there? Oh, yes. Um, William Shatner had uh, a bit of a go at modern Star Trek and also said F Star Wars uh, in his Comic-Con Shatner on Shatner panel. Um, I am not going to go in. In fact, I haven't even looked in detail at what Shatner had to say. Um, one of the things about William Shatner is that, beloved as he is, he's not necessarily the friendliest or nicest guy in the world, and he does like to create controversy. Uh, he's previously slagged off Star, uh, Star Trek fans, for instance. So, you know, yeah, I don't know that he would know whether Gene Roddenberry would like modern Trek or not. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, Lord of Rings, The Rings of Power, uh, had a new trailer re revealing the creation of a Balrog. Uh, and actually, something that I really caught my eye. Um, there's going to be an animated series called um, Secrets of the Mogwai, based, obviously, upon the Gremlins movie, um, the first of which I loved. And original Gremlin star Zach Galligan will return uh, for Secrets of the Mogwai. And I am very much here for that. Um, oh, they've also announced um, Rings of Power's female dwarves will have beards, according to producer, which made me chuckle because uh, there's been a whole thing in the Terry Pratchett Discworld novels for years about the fact that all dwarves have beards. Male and female, you actually can't tell them apart, uh, and you know it's 
it, it, it's glorious to me, absolutely glorious, that uh, the Lord of the Rings have picked up on that and, and are running with it. So that was cool. Uh, we got a trailer for I Am Groot, uh, which is a Disney Plus show coming soon, actually. August 10th, I think. Um, they've announced, uh, and I didn't mention this either in the Marvel segment, um, there's going to be a what, a what If Season 2 uh, in early 2023, uh, and they've confirmed they're also going to be making Season 3 of Marvel's What If for Disney+. Plus. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Um, and so, so, so much more. Uh, so much going on. It's... What... Such a time we live in that all of this stuff is coming. And it's it's just great. I grew up in a time when, you know, geek content on telly uh, and in movies was not that common. And now, just look at it. Such a time for a geek to be alive. I cannot tell you how happy all of this stuff makes me. But... But, 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 there is more to life than San Diego. So what else has been happening in the wonderful, wacky world of geek? Well, to explain why I'm so excited about something that is coming to Netflix very soon, I need to take you back in time just a little bit. So hang on. OK, don't be alarmed. We are now... There's been a mass book burning of Sam Rushdie's Satanic Verses. George W. Bush has just become president in America. And the biggest selling single, and yes, I do mean vinyl single, because those are still a thing, in the UK was right on time by Black Box. But that's not why we're here. Just follow me down here a minute, OK? We've just stepped off the moor in Sheffield, down a little street called Matilda Street. And... Uh, just uh, yeah, yeah. This this door here, okay, just on the corner. Yeah, yeah. I know they've painted the building black. I don't know why they did that either. Just step in, and yeah, it does smell a little musty in here. But just look at the place. This, folks, this is nostalgia and comics in Sheffield in 1989. Now, if you just come over here, yeah, yes, just there, there, that comic there. Sandman Issue 1 by Neil Gaiman. Uh, oh, you see that long head, dude? Over there in the long green coat. Yeah, that's me. Um, yeah, I know, I was a handsome devil back then. Uh, long, flowing, golden locks. Um, yeah. Yeah, pre-beard. Clean shaven. Yep, yeah, yeah, me. Just, uh, just step back out of his way for a minute. Because you're about to watch me make the worst decision of my life. And seriously, there have been some doozies. But this one, this one is truly bad. Yeah. Yeah, look, there I am. Picking up Sandman issue one. Looking through it. Smiling, looking impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's me putting it back down on the shelf again. Okay. You see, I had a limited budget. And I could only afford one more comic. And I could have chosen that. And now oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, I hate this bit. Yeah, I'm reaching out and I'm picking up Marvel Superhero Summer Special. And I'm taking it to the counter and I'm paying for it. Oh, God. Oh, let's get out of here. Let's go back to the present.
Oh, 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 that's still, I still cringe at that. Yep, yep, not only could I have bought the price, and if I'd done that, I still would have it, and it would be in mint condition, because that's the kind of geek I am. I didn't. Instead, I picked up Marvel Superheroes Summer Special, because, and I kid you not, it had a short story in it featuring Tigra. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not my finest hour. I was eventually turned on to Sandman a couple of years later at university by my best mate. And it is a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. Like a lot of comics that have gone on to be massively influential, it doesn't necessarily strike new readers as as important as it was, simply because so much of what was groundbreaking about it at the time has been done since so many times by people who've been influenced by it. But Sandman is the original and the best. 75 issues of pure, unadulterated, unremitting genius. Characters that you really cared about. Characters that drew you into their world. A world that is so encompassing and so deeply rooted, not just in mythology, but also in reality. The fantasy of it just felt real. If you're unfamiliar, and how are you unfamiliar, particularly if you listen to this show, I've talked about the book before, Sandman follows Morpheus, the king, the lord, at least, of dreams. Morpheus is one of seven siblings, each of whom is an aspect of humanity. There is the oldest brother, Destiny, Death, Dream, Desire, Delirium, and Despair. And each one of them has powers to act on humanity in their specific field. Uh, an interesting touch, delirium wasn't always delirium. Delirium used to be delight. And unfortunately, the world happened and delight became delirium. And missing is their brother, Destruction, who just kind of let his responsibilities slip, which is why destruction is so uncontrolled. Because the person who's supposed to be in charge doesn't bother. It's amazing. It's a stunning piece of work. And it is coming to Netflix. That's right. I am plugging a TV show that's not on Disney+. Plus. It's coming to Netflix. And in all seriousness, if you do not have a Netflix subscription, given how hard Netflix are clamping down on people sharing their passwords, when this drops... Even if it's just for a month, so you can just watch this. Treat yourself. Get yourself a Netflix subscription. They're not paying me to say this. Okay, Netflix, if you're listening, I will take your money, but they're not actually paying me to say this. I'm saying this. From what I've seen, the Sandman TV show, which is being showrun by Neil Gaiman, is going to be worth the price of admittance to Netflix on its own. So if you're not interested in anything else, Get yourself a month of Netflix and watch Sandman. While you're there, 
you might want to dabble in Stranger Things and Happy and the Umbrella Academy. You're welcome. Just just do it. Thank me later. The reason I'm mentioning it now, because it's not out on Netflix yet, is they've dropped not a trailer. It's not a trailer that they've dropped. They've dropped a clip of death. And it's so moving. Uh, it will be in the show notes. Uh, it's not really a spoiler, so, you know, don't worry about it. But they've dropped quite a lot of clips, most of which I'm avoiding, because I don't want to see the whole thing before it starts. But this couple of minutes worth of clip is just stunning. Uh, Morpheus is there, but he doesn't say anything. It's He's not important in this. It's his sister, Death, who features in this clip. And it opens with the sound of somebody playing the violin. And we see that it's an old man. An old, old man. Sitting in a chair. Playing Schubert. And as Death walks into the room, he stops. And she says, oh, please don't stop. Carry on. And he says, I can't. He never finished it. And he tells her who he is. And she smiles and says, yeah, I know who you are. And then she asks if he knows who she is. And as we all will, eventually, he recognises her and he knows why she's there. And as we all will, he is unnerved by this and he asks for a little more time. And she says that she's sorry, but there is no more time. But there is, because he, she gives him the chance to say um, a, a short, brief Jewish prayer. And then death takes his hand and he asks... What happens next? And she says, this is where you find out. It's such a quiet, beautiful little scene, which is it's lifted directly from the comics. I mean, I've seen that scene before, but I was nervous. I'm going to admit I was nervous about the Sandman TV show. As you know, I am not the sort of person who looks at a piece of media and says, I don't like it. Therefore, it should not exist. I'm the kind of person who looks at a piece of media that he doesn't like and says, I don't like that. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. Other people are free to enjoy it if they are misguided enough to do so, but it's not for me. I'm ignoring it. And I was worried I was going to have to do that with Sandman because the comic means so much to me. Neil Gaiman's work means a lot to me, but Sandman in particular, not just because he's good. I mean, it helps that it's really good, but also it's the time that I discovered it. It's the place I discovered it. It's what was happening in my life at the time. Sandman happened while I was at university. It was the time I was properly becoming the person I am. And Sandman had no small influence on that. It's the time I was meeting the people who are still my friends. It's the time I met the woman who is now my wife. You know, it, And Sandman is wrapped up in all of that. Every issue is not just a piece of a story. It's connected to memories of what was happening in my life when I first bought that issue. It's that kind of stuff. Early 90s Batman does exactly the same thing to me. Um, so, yeah, I was worried. Like, if they mess this up, I'm not going to be able to enjoy it. You know, And, and I, I'm so reassured now I've seen this clip. It does not matter at all that the actor they've got playing Death is black. She's white in the comics. Who cares? Okay, the, the visual of Death that was used in the comics was actually based on a real person who is no longer with us. It's not intrinsic to her character. 
that she's one particular ethnicity or another. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the actor they've got playing Death absolutely nails the character. Nails it. Death is by far the most popular character in the Sandman universe. And by far my favourite character in the Sandman universe. Because in spite of the job that she does, she is kind, deeply caring, very, very positive, very dedicated and hugely compassionate. And that's what came through in that clip. If the rest of the show is even half as comics accurate as that single clip, which you can go and see in the show notes, it's going to be amazing. I have never, honestly, I have never looked forward to a TV show more than I'm now looking forward to this. There is a trailer that's dropped as well, which honestly hasn't hurt. Again, it looks amazing. Yes, a lot of the characters look different than they do in the comic. It's a comic about literal living dreams. Seriously, what they look like just does not matter. So, yeah, that's all the TV news I'm going to bother covering this week, because honestly, nothing else on TV matters right now. For me, it's all about Sandman. And so, finally, we will return to our short series, which is hopefully going to be a long series, about the wonderful women of science. And this week, that woman of science is an astronomer called Herschel. But no, I know what you're thinking. Herschel was a bloke. And yes, William Herschel was. But his sister, Caroline Herschel, was also an astronomer who has been terribly overlooked, largely because of her connection with her brother William. Caroline Herschel was born in Hanover in the Holy Roman Empire on the 16th of March, 1750. Uh, she was struck with typhus at the age of 10, uh, which uh, halted her growth as she never grew taller than four foot three. Um, she also lost the vision in her left eye as a result of that illness. And it was decided by her mother that since she was clearly never going to marry in that state, um, I'm not sure I'd have liked Caroline Herschel's mother, but anyway, uh, she should be trained to be a house servant rather than be educated, which is what her father uh, wanted for his daughter. Um, her father tutored her anyway and would occasionally include her in her brother's lessons uh, for things like violin. Mr. Herschel, Herr Herschel, their father, her father, was a, an oboist, uh, a musician, and music was a big part of the Herschel's early life. She moved to Bath uh, in England when her father died uh, to join her brothers, uh, who I think genuinely seemed to have wanted to get her away from her mum. And it was on that journey to England where she was first introduced to astronomy by looking at the constellations. Um, in Bath, she began to run her brother, big brother William's household uh, and also began learning to sing. William Herschel at this point was an organist and music teacher established at 90 New King Street, Bath. And the reason I know that is I've been there because it's now the Herschel Museum of Astronomy. And her brother William was also the choir master at the Octagon Chapel in Bath. He was very busy with his musical career and busy organising concerts. And, and Caroline finally began to indulge her passion for learning. Uh, and she was taking regular lessons in English, arithmetics, 
and singing from her brother. Uh, and she was also taking dance lessons, learning to play the harpsichord. And she eventually became a performer for her brother William, uh, musical performances. And she became the principal singer in William Herschel's oratorio concert. And uh, after a performance of Handel's Messiah in 1778, where she had been the, the first soloist, uh, she was offered an engagement at the Birmingham Festival of Music. Uh, but she refused to sing for any conductor but her brother. And at that time, uh, sort of late 1770s, her singing career began to wind down because she was beginning to spend a lot more time on astronomy, as was her brother. Caroline supported William's efforts as an astronomer, although she did say in her memoir, I did nothing for my brother but what a well-trained puppy dog would have done. That is to say, I did what he commanded me. Which I think, honestly, she's selling herself a little short there. Herschel was starting to build his own telescopes uh, from lenses that he'd ground because he wasn't happy with the quality of lenses he could buy. And Caroline would read to him while he worked. And she became a significant astronomer in her own right. They moved to a new house in 1781 after uh, their hat-making business failed. And... Caroline was dealing with some leftover stock on the 13th of March, just as her brother William was discovering the planet Uranus. Now, I say he discovered it. He was certainly the first person to see it, but he actually misidentified it. He thought that what he was looking at was a comet. Uh, and of course, Uranus is not, in fact, a comet. It's a planet. And he didn't appreciate that straight away. Um, but that did prove the superiority of his telescopes because nobody else could have seen the wretched thing and so in 1782 herschel william herschel accepted the office of court astronomer to king george iii and yeah their musical career was over so that really i suppose marks the start of the herschels as astronomers now caroline began recording her astro astronomical observations in 1782 and she, inscribed, she, she wrote on the first three opening pages, this is what I call bills and receipts of my comets, comets and letters, and book of observations. You can see these at the Royal Astronomical Society in London, uh, those notebooks. Um, she made her first discovery on the 26th of February 1783, uh, when she found a nebula that was not included in the Messier catalogue. The Messier catalogue still is like all the objects in the sky that aren't stars, basically. Uh, the same night... For goodness sake, she also independently discovered Messier uh, 110, uh, the second companion of the Androm Andro uh, Andromeda galaxy. My goodness, my notes are hard to read this week. Now, that set off William Herschel looking for nebulae, uh, but it was his sister who did it first. And when William discovered he was terrible at it, he turned to Caroline to show him how it was done. Um, in total, Caroline Herschel discovered eight comets. So next time you hear about an astronomer called Herschel, remember Caroline, because she was just as important as her big brother. And that is literally all we've got time for. Uh, I am going to have to edit a little bit down, actually. We've gone over time as I'm recording, uh, which is something I never do. So anyway, we're back again next week with more geeky stuff. Hopefully we'll have that review of the final section of Stranger Things season four recorded for you by then so until we see you then be kind to yourself be kind to everybody else stay safe but above all else stay geeky bye